Yes, my problem is memory, yes. But it's much greater than memory. It extends beyond it. I'm not the same per I'm not living the same life but being unable to remember it. I've moved out of it and can't remember. I can remember that I lived a, f- a first life, but I can't remember very much. I can re- I fail to remember within it. And, I mean, that's the thing. Like, it seems to me that you're a new person in your view. You can remember bits of fragments of who you were, and they, I guess you... Ex- because it's my first life, which I believe has validity, which I, I, I wish that I had not moved from it. Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad, Episode 5, Desire Paths. Memory is a slippery thing. Ever since I can remember, my dad has been someone who forgets words. I often forget words too. Many people do. It sometimes takes a while to remember them. Maybe you have to think about something else and then it will suddenly come back to you. Or you have to think of something similar and work back from there. I often find I just need to catch the corner of the word and then I can pull it fully into view. I also often mix up words. For example, I am always saying autumn when I mean August. But um, I've forgotten what I'm talking about. Well, that's entirely appropriate, really. (laughs) Working in true storytelling has made me acutely aware of the fact that when we recount memories, we are often recounting rewritten memories. Our minds smooth things out for narrative sense. Often I will ask my partner about moments we have experienced together and she will remember them differently. Sometimes the difference is just that she remembers alternative details, but sometimes we disagree on the facts of the events. That happens a lot with my family too, and I have quite a big and complicated family, so there are lots of very different narratives we are all trying to tell over each other all the time. Memory is hard anyway, you know, for people. Yeah. Well, I can't remember the full details of things that happened and I'm thinking this is definitely a thing I think like I recognise it's worse for you I definitely do well it's because it's permanent I mean it's sort of going on all the time literally yeah no I know it's not because you're trying to remember a particular thing but your memory actually will operate against you but it's slippery whatever you try to remember that's the thing though what I'm saying is like memory is slippery anyway it's already kind of ethereal and hard to trust and then if it gets even worse I can see how that's going to obviously be worse but I think like memory's a bugger in the first place for a while I didn't fully buy the idea that my dad had dementia because initially it seemed like he was complaining about something that had always happened to him 
his memory seemed as reliable or unreliable as anyone else's, and was generally better than it was for a lot of people of a similar age. So you're like 92 now. Yeah. And because of that, you ha- um, are not so good at remembering things. No, I've got dementia of well, some sort, yes. Some yeah. sort of dementia. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, but That's mild, very, very, very mild dementia. Well, I, was with, I was with you in the doctors when you were given yes. this prognosis. And uh, I know that it, it, what was said was mild. It not is not mild, that the doctor's yes. necessarily right. Your lived experience well, it is, is potentially it is, no, more No, it is important. mild because I know people who've had had deep dementia and, uh, you know, they literally can't remember anything. Indeed. It, it, you know, their life becomes memoryless. Uh, it, you know, it, it, therefore it becomes very difficult and impossible for them. No, I, I can't... Well, I can remember broadly the, the sort of past, my past... Um, but I can't place names and people where they were precisely and yeah. what they were called. And you know. Wikipedia describes a desire path as a path created as a consequence of erosion caused by human or animal footfall or traffic. The path usually represents the shortest or most easily navigated route between an origin and a destination. They are also known as desire lines herd paths and bootleg trails. Memories are like desire paths. When you first walk down them, they are overgrown and full of details. The more you walk them, the more eroded they become. They are smoothed out and set. You get to what you remember more quickly, but what you remember has become something else. You no longer have to look for landmarks because there is a path for you to walk. What I've come to realise is that my dad now forgets the pathways to the misremembered words, and he can't find his way back to his memories, whether they are rewritten or not. But the fact that he is trying to remember misremembered memory can mean that when he is exposed to the original source, it seems alien to him. When I first wrote this narration, I'd recently had a conversation with him about current events where I casually mentioned Adam Smith, generally considered the father of capitalism. And my dad said, who's that? I don't remember. This shocked me because my dad once wrote a novel where every character was called Adam Smythe because they were clones of Adam Smith. Or maybe it was that they were clones named after Adam Smith. I was never really sure. It was a pretty confusing book. Every character had the same name for a start. I pointed out how strange it was considering he had included Adam Smith in a novel he'd written in such a prominent way that he would forget who Adam Smith was. It soon became clear that he couldn't remember writing the novel either. Maybe on a different day he'll remember both the book and who Adam Smith is. His memory is changeable like that. Sometimes the pathways are there, and other times they aren't. Back when I wrote this narration, my dad was more coherent than he is now, and because he was forgetting things, he was trying to revisit them. 
That year, my little sister and I finally arranged to take him on a trip back to Bristol, where he grew up. There's four, there are fours, and then there should be a double house. So it's the brownie one. It's a double one on its It's own. Could be this one. It is this one. Yes, that looks like it. This is it. This is thirty-one. Yes, that looks like it. This is thirty-one. Yeah, I think that's it. It's changed. I mean, it's. I'm sure it has. That looks very uh, newly done on the outside. You know what the surface was was brick like the other like all the others. others. Yeah, I think it's that one. Yes, and there's a road up there, which makes sense. When he saw his childhood home, he was disorientated. Everything was in the wrong place due to the changes to the structure of the house that had happened in the 80 or so years since he was last there. Uh, It it was interesting that the house was not at all like it had been 80 years ago, uh, 70 or 70-something years ago, when it was built. It was built as a council house, and my parents were renting it when I was in it, and it's been changed tremendously, so much so that even the inside geography of it, which I was hoping, if I could get on enough, well enough with the people who are living there, that I would have a chance to go in the house, see my bedroom where I'd slept when I had um, scarlet fever and pulled things up, presents up from outside because I had to live in isolation... And I also thought I'd be able to go into the front living room where I'd played with toy soldiers. But in fact, the whole inner geography of the house was totally changed. So it didn't really feel like going back to the same place. But I knew it was geographically, so I was very pleased to have seen it. Walls were where they hadn't been before. The front of the house was pebble-dashed. The windows were double-glazed. At the back of the house, a field he had walked to school across was now a church. He had specific images he had wanted to re-see, but they weren't there. Everything looked wrong, and he didn't get what he'd hoped from the experience. And we did. I mean, we went into the house today. Uh, we went into your childhood house. I mean, it was. It, we didn't manage. To, they didn't. We weren't allowed upstairs. And I think no. it, at first the guy in the house was quite wary of us, but I think he warmed to us by the end. But you went there. You've been in it. It didn't feel like I was walking on a, in a room that I'd walk, walk, walked in in the past. No, it didn't feel like that. It didn't look like the same room. It didn't. I mean, if the same room had been, uh, if the wallpaper had been changed, or if. Uh, you know, yeah, it was a different furniture in it. I would still have recognised that as the same room. Well, how it was now, yeah. it didn't seem relating to it at all. Well, I think there were some structural changes, but no, I also... There were structural changes in the bot- that, that area. Yeah, but I also think it's definitely to do with the fact that when you're a child, things are different sizes anyway, different... Like, when you go back to your yeah. primary school... Everything's tiny, but when you were at there, everything was the right size. It was the same size as you, and teachers were big, you know, and desks, yeah. their desks were big. Yeah. You know, so it, there's going to be an element of it that's that, that it's just that, that you remember it from a different perspective in the room. You know, you were, the, you were at the wrong height walking around. You weren't walking around at, at five to eight-year-old eye line you were walking around at your current eye line which maybe is a little bit lower than it was a few years ago but it's yeah, still it's still, still higher than that eight or nine, yeah so i think there might be part of that yeah, it is that could be. um but it had no relationship to how it had been when i knew it 
And the same is true with the garden, the back garden. Beyond the back garden, there were houses built, whereas when I lived there, beyond the back garden, there was a field. Right, and even the front of the house had changed, I guess, because like, it, yes. it wasn't even red brick anymore. No, it wasn't red brick. It was had it been coated, hadn't it? Yeah. I've forgotten the word. I think it's pebble-dashed, but I uh, might yeah. be wrong. Yeah, yeah. You were quite disappointed, I guess, in some ways by it. In a way, yes. I mean, I remembered that road as it had been as the place in which I, I used to play with my friends. In those days, you played in the street. You played outside. I had a tricycle, I remember. And I used to, um, you know, we had, we had, I can remember some of the gut kind of games we had, that sort of thing. It's actually more than 70 years. You said 70 earlier on, but it's actually at least 80, I think. I mean, I was there when I was five, wasn't I? Yeah, and I'm 93. Right. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, when so much change, I mean, like you've said quite a lot today, I guess, that that all areas change so much that, you know, it it was going to be really, it was hard actually to to recapture the memories. Yeah. Yeah, it was. But then yeah. it, it sounds to me like you don't need to recapture the memories no, in a way, no. though. You've got them really crystal clear compared no, to a lot no, of your I'm memories now. Pointed. I'm just interested to see that you know that the, the, that the change is so enormous that it can the reflection that you sort of imagine is reference from one to the other sort of seems to just be impossible. Right. You know. So you remember how it was as a different place. Right. And you see that here's a new place where where the place that I do remember was. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I I, I can kind of relate to this experience because I mean, obviously, doing getting better acquainted, I've gone back to a lot of the different places that I used to live, and I've yeah. seen them, and they've been the past kind of coated over the present and it's you sort of see two histories at the same time or lots of histories because you for me in Cardiff I've I've been lots of ages so I see Mm -hmm. lots of different kinds of moments of time I mean so I mean I guess you're doing that but I mean this is these are very strong memories for you uh a time when you're not got very much in the way of memory generally you're really crystal clear on these childhood (laughs) memories right I mean I've got much more memory um, uh, I mean, the memory I have after that, of course, is 14 Pine Avenue, West Wickham, you know, in Beckenham, which by which then was a, um, an outer suburb of London. And I remember that much better. And I had, I mean, it, one of the early years when I was up here and I moved up from Cardiff, I went back to look at right. that. And here in this context and, is, and is London. Totally the same. I mean, it was as I remembered it, you know. But, of course, I was not looking back so far. Right. No, I was looking back to what I mean. I was, I, we moved to London when I was eight, I think, eight or nine. The next day, we took him to the Bristol Museum, which he remembered visiting regularly as a child, but couldn't remember why he had gone there. He wanted explanation rather than recreation. And when we got to the museum, we thought this part of the trip would be disappointing to him too. It turned out that the original museum had been bombed in the war. It wasn't even the same building, so how could it jog his memory? The museum building opened in 1905 as Bristol Art Gallery, specialising in fine art and antiques. In 1930, the rear hall and the company galleries were added. In 1940, following an air raid on the night of the 24th of November, that gutted what was the museum next to the door? The art gallery absorbed all the surviving museum collections, including natural history. So back when he came here, this wouldn't have been the museum. This would have been the art gallery next door. OK, right. It wasn't until 1940 
that the museum moved into this building. I can understand that, yeah. So it was next door? Yeah, but it, it, it was totally destroyed, was it? It was yeah. bombed in the war. Yeah. In 1940. In 1940, as early as that. Yes, it could well have been. But the exhibits that had survived the bombing had been moved into the art gallery next door, which became the modern-day Bristol Museum. So as we walked around, he suddenly found himself remembering, looking at the same pieces of taxidermy that he'd seen as a child. It reminded him that he'd been into animals and that he'd loved animal stories and subscribed to a magazine about zoos. It explained why he had gone there. That's how I remember that. There was that quality about it, because I was very interested in animals at the time. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff stuffing, even in those days. Oh, yeah, I would imagine there was. And some yeah. of these are very old. You can tell the ones that look yeah. really new and the ones that don't. Yes. Yes, I mean, they could well be... Yeah, there. these don't look new at all. No. But then if they're not, I mean, you... you they might have been there when you were there. They are the sort of things that you would keep. Donated in 1930. There you are. That is interesting. So that this is, they acquired yes, so that is definitely, in 1930. Yes. yes, well, I would have been in right. 1932 or three. Something like so that. you might yes. well have seen this I before. I might well have actually seen that. And I certainly have a feeling... About some of these, of, yeah. Of, 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 of this kind yeah. of thing I was looking at then. And it's a stuffed, it's two stuffed uh, red kites, uh, one of which is devouring a rabbit. Well, I actually remember I saw it, but I do have a kind of feeling that I did. Well, maybe that feeling's a memory. I mean, it's quite a dramatic image as well for a kid, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, some of those, like the fox looks quite old and things. I think we were lucky with the date on that one, though. I don't think any of the others have dates. So these are stuffed badges. Badges, badges. Uh, don't think I remember it. Not specifically. You're not ringing any bells, badges, I'm afraid. I don't know. It does have a, does have a sort of... Strange familiarity feeling. Well, the badges are familiar. Remember it precisely, but it's something about all this is that how it was like at the time. It was a very similar approach that they had, obviously. Stuffed animals, that was the big thing that attracted me. I'm sure this was what I came this was what I came round the museum to see. This is what attracted me. Now I've seen this, I'm sure of it. When I originally wrote this narration, he was re-watching the entire series of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Hey, no, take Buffy, what's his name? Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon. I mean, I think he's a genius too. But, I mean, he's taken this, this medium of... Uh, television. Serial, yeah. serial television. So, yeah, series television. And turned it, I think, into very... He came to that show late. He didn't really get into it when I did. I'm a big fan of the show and have seen it lots of times. I even did my television drama dissertation at university on Buffy. It was nice that when I dropped round and he was watching it, I could sit with him and watch it too. He would get frustrated that he needed to use subtitles and would occasionally turn them off for a bit. Then he would reluctantly agree that he couldn't hear well enough to understand what was happening without them. 
He enjoyed re-watching the show, but not in the same way that he had the first few times he watched it. He would often mutter under his breath, trying to set characters' names or actors' names in mind as they came up. He told me that when he got to the end, he was thinking of starting it again, hoping that frequent watching would help him to keep the story in his head. Today we took you to the museum. Yeah. And it was, I I think, actually, the discovery of the way that it was full of... uh, animals what do you call it when you when you resurrect a body taxidermy taxidermy yes that that it was full of of animals uh and uh, and i came to realize that that in fact was the reason that i was so um preoccupied with it and i loved going there so much and then as we went around it did appear to me some things did appear to sort of make my memory, make me vaguely think, oh, I remember something like that. Today's been more successful in terms of jogging your memory, making well, you kind of feel that, what you wanted. It really did show me that that was clearly... I mean, I didn't remember it as that, but it, as soon as I saw it, I thought, yes, of course, that was the... You know, I couldn't remember exactly what the, what, what the museum had offered me. But as soon as I saw that, I realised that, you know, that that's what it had was been. And it tied up with the fact that I knew that I had been interested in animals at that time. Yeah. So it was quite natural, yeah. you know. Right. So, you, you know, you had a, almost you said to me at one point you had like you, you wanted to know why you remembered it. You knew you remembered it, but you wanted to know kind of why you used to go. You remembered that you used to go and that kind of got answered really, when you no, got to the... But the difference was that the childhood house was kind of almost a disappointment, I feel like, whereas the museum really was exactly what you were hoping for. Yes, it was. It was. What did you say was was not? The, the childhood house was more of a disappointment. Uh, well, uh, I, I mean, it, clearly it was the house. Yeah. Um, what was the disappointment? Was it had it, it had been changed... Yeah, I mean, I guess it was different kinds of memories. You've got very distinct uh, memories of the house. You can yeah, you can see it, yeah. right, in your mind yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. Whereas I can actually. And what you wanted to find was what you what you'd seen. Whereas with the yeah. with the museum, you weren't really looking for what you'd seen. You were looking for why that why, feeling. Why? why I had gone there so much. Yes. Yes. My dad had a close friend called Charles who died when I was a child. One of my brother's middle names is Charles, in honour of him. When they first met, one of the things that cemented their friendship was reading and talking about the novel Catch-22. My dad decided to read the book again because he couldn't remember it. One afternoon I let myself into his house and found him sitting in his chair holding Catch-22 with an angry look on his face. Dave, he said, this book isn't right. I asked him what he meant and he said... The story isn't the one I remember. It doesn't make sense. I thought it was very different to this. I don't understand why. I only had a vague understanding of Catch-22's plot based on looking it up as an idiom because I'd never read the book. Maybe I never will. I looked it up again when writing this. 
Wikipedia describes it as a paradoxical situation from which an individual cannot escape because of contradictory rules, which sounds like dementia, I guess. Today, when we were by the ice cream van waiting for ice cream, first of all, you started speaking Italian. La vita comincia la nove mezzo. That's Italian. Sulla... Sulla terra, Inglaterra. And then you started singing in Italian for a for a while. Do you remember this? I can't remember this. Well, you did it because me, me and Bree were in the back of the car singing. What was I singing? What was the song? Can you remember the words? Or I don't know. Can you remember the words? No, Brianna can't remember the words either. An Italian song I know. Don't think I don't know any Italian song. Well, that's quite weird because you definitely were singing one. So the words you were saying that I remember was that thing that you often say, which I can't pronounce or remember properly. But la vida, la mina, la vera comencia. Is it nobody knows in Italian? Is that right? Or something of a comincia. I can't remember it now. You were just saying it. That's why. That's why I even started to talk. Really, you were saying. La vita, la vita comincia. That's right. That's right. La vita comincia. Ah, la vita comincia. La vita comincia. La vita comincia. La nuova mezzo. That's the one. What does it mean? It means life. Life commences at nine thirty. <laughs> life commences at nine thirty. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what it meant. That's what it. La vita comincia la nuova mezzo. Well, why do you say it? Well, don't know. <laughs> it's just a rose, and I say. Did you start in Italy? Kind of slightly uh, dismissive of philosophy, isn't it? It's, it's sort of generally dismissive of philosophy. Right. Yeah. And is it like? Did you pick it up in Italy? No, no. I don't know. I think I made it up. I simply made it up. I mean, I know La Vita Comincia, the, the life life commences at. And I just made it up. Nove mezzo, that's nine and a half. Okay. So, well... And then you were singing in Italian too. Yeah, was I? That yeah, was it, wasn't it? No. Um, this happened. I mean, I've literally got the video. I mean, I can, I mean, you know, I'll edit this together. That's Italian. So, uh, I have known some Italian songs, I don't think so. So I think it was sparked by the fact that the the ice cream van had an Italian name. Did it? Yeah. No. no don't remember that. Either, of course. Well, it's funny because it's like because you know that was a memory that was sparked today, like to, literally today, by looking at something which you can't remember anymore. True. No. Uh, but you're certainly still having connections and memories when you see things. Oh yeah, I have the connection when I see it, but then I forget forget that I've had the connection later. Things like that. Right. 
Yes, I some, not always, but I mean, I yes, I mean, if well, if I do see if something, if I if something doesn't make me aware, that means that I do see it, and I see it, and I actually see it as I imagine I should. But you know, that is memory. That means that that piece of memory is all right. You know, right. Or on that occasion, I mean, you may not remember the same thing the next day. It's, it was quite a kind of like an audio diamond. It was like, you know, one of those where you're like, oh, that's going to be nice. <laughs> I hope the battery doesn't run out and uh, I lose it. I first saw Citizen Kane as a teenager in the cinema at Chapter Arts Centre in Cardiff. My dad had taken me because it's his favourite film. He idolises its director, Orson Welles. It was a film that changed his life and made him fall in love with the medium of film. It influenced his writing and his documentary making. He had never seen anything like it. Your other big film hero, or your biggest film hero, who I don't, we don't completely know, agree on, I know, I know. but yeah. is, is awesome work. Absolutely. And no, he, no, he's a he, film hero. I think he's a great artist. But when he made Citizen Kane, yeah. remembering back to my film studies days, yeah. A-level, yeah. He didn't know the limitations, no, so he asked people to do things. Well, Greg that, Toland, he had a great cameraman. But he, he had actually one of the other few very, very creative cameramen. But Greg Toland had Toland to work out. Became a director. Yeah, too. but he. I don't think. But Toland was presented with impossible, in theory, impossible requests that yeah. he then had to work out how technically well, always, to achieve. Yeah. In those days, that was always the same. I mean, with a director, you know, if you were a director, you you would you you would have a request. You either, you either had the kind of camera that said, oh, no, can't do that. Can't be sorry. And I expect we go, no, it was software or somewhere. Or you had to kind of go and say, all right. It's understandable that it blew him away. The film revolutionised the way films were made. But it didn't have that effect on me. I found it boring and melodramatic. My dad and I had many good-natured arguments about it after that. I may not love Citizen Kane, but I do love film and television. Because of that, I took A-level film studies where we studied Citizen Kane in depth, some sections of it shot by shot. That changed the way that I would talk about it with my dad. I could see even more that, to his eyes, it must have been something new and exciting. My dad has a cinema veterans card, which, when I was a child, meant that he could see pretty much any film for free. And he could take another person too. We made use of it a lot, and it was part of what gave me my love of cinema. By the time I was studying A-levels, he was only allowed to see free films before 6.30pm on a weekday, so it was generally less useful. But when I started doing film studies, I started going to the cinema with him every week in some of my free periods. Afterwards, we would go to the pub and discuss the films. At the time, Martin Scorsese was, to me, what Orson Welles was to my dad. I didn't revise much for my A-levels, but I got the highest mark in Wales for my film studies exam. Thinking back now, I may not have done the kind of revision that I was supposed to do, but watching those films with my dad and breaking them down afterwards was probably excellent preparation. Around the time when I wrote this piece, I went into my dad's flat and picked up a package sent by Amazon. I opened it for him and he said, oh good, it's come. It was a DVD of Citizen Kane. 
I asked him why he'd ordered a new copy when he already had one. That one's not right, he said. It's not the proper version. I'm pretty sure this is the same as the one you already have, I said. No, no, that's a different version. It has scenes missed out. Are you sure? Don't you remember how you felt when you read Catch-22? Maybe the same thing has happened. The next day, when I visited, Dad was again sitting in his chair looking distressed. This one's wrong too, he said. Neither of the DVDs suggest that they're different cuts of the movie, Dad. Citizen Kane is probably one of the most famous films there is. They aren't going to accidentally put out different cuts without people noticing. And haven't you had that first copy for years? I mean, you've watched it before and you didn't think it was wrong. This must be your memory. It can't be. I've watched this film so many times. I know what happens in it. Talking to my dad about what he thought was wrong with the cut, it seemed to me that his issues fell into two categories. Scenes and shots that were missing, which I also remembered being in the film, and scenes and shots that I didn't remember at all. When we watched it together, I found the bits that I remembered for him. But he still wasn't happy with them, saying that they didn't feel right. And he was still convinced that whole sequences were missing. He remembers scenes from Charles Foster Kane's adolescence and from his later life that just aren't there. We checked a few times. We watched scenes over and over. I read out two full synopsises of the film from IMDb and Wikipedia to prove that the scenes weren't there. He greeted all of this evidence with scepticism. I can understand that. It's a film that he has seen over and over again. It's hard to believe that he now suddenly remembers it wrong. But that was what had happened. He could describe the missing scenes in detail, including specific shots. Some of his descriptions sounded like they may have come from other films. Others sounded like he had just filled in the blanks in the narrative. That's the thing about Citizen Kane. It's a film about memory and conflicting narratives, about trying to piece together a man's life from other people's memories. It has a lot of blanks to fill in. It's a film that wants its viewers to form their own ideas about its central character. Maybe my dad's mind was making subtext into text. I reminded him that I may not have seen the film as many times as he had, but I did know it intimately. I ran through my own history with the film. I reminded him again of Catch-22 and Adam Smith and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Eventually, he came to agree that the issue wasn't with Citizen Kane. A few days later, we went through the loop again. It took less time to get back to the conclusion that his mind was playing tricks on him, but it still took quite a long time. None of these experiences have led me to enjoy Citizen Kane any more than I used to. If I found it slow when I first watched it, now I find it uncomfortably slow. I don't find the characters in it interesting. I don't find its observations particularly insightful or moving. On my dad's wall in the flat where we had those conversations was a picture of Orson Welles smoking a cigar and looking at the camera. I wonder if he remembered his own film properly when he died. He died when he was 70, though. Dad has 25 years on him.
I never want to see that damn film ever again. But I do wonder what version of it I will remember when I am old. I wonder how watching it with my dad will affect my memory of it. I now have memories of my dad's false memories. Will there come a day when my mind folds those memories into mine? The film has already transformed for me. I've always thought of it as emotionally distant and clinical, but it now has a lot of powerful emotions embedded in it for me. It finally has resonances within it that will affect me. I wonder if one day I will listen back to this and find that this has some scenes missing. Down to a Sunless Sea on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed. Both should be available anywhere that you get your podcasts. So do let me know if you can't find it on your podcast platform of choice. You can find Down to a Sunless Sea Memories of My Dad on Facebook. It's on Twitter at SunlessPod. You can email the show at down to a sunless pod at gmail.com. The episodes and the show notes are all collected together at down to a sunless pod.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at goosefat101. The artwork for this show was designed by my brother Tony Pickering. For more art by Tony, go to pick hyphenart.co.uk As a six-year-old, you used to play on this? Yeah, yeah, because I lived in there. If, if I lived If you lived in there, but we think you did. It's the same number you said. Yeah. It's in the right place for the room well. Well. Looks like they're doing some work in there. Some renovation work. Really? I think so. Shall I go and knock on the door? I don't see why not. I come with you. Well, yeah, okay. Do you want want to do that? Yeah. All right. Just the two of us. I think, yeah. Because I mean, you can't. Well, maybe we want to walk around the other side of the car. So, my dad and me look quite confusing, I think, to somebody who's opening a door to us. I've got a microphone in my hand. Is it right? I have now. And my dad's body language. Hello. Good day. I wonder if I dare speak to you about this. Is quite strange in this moment. La vita comincia la dove messo? Sulla terra, in la terra.